Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. I'm your reader and host, Mark Bronhier. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. All right, we got, uh, we're going to start off with a couple of obituaries here. First, we've got this one from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 19, 2023. Susan Elizabeth Balenberg, February 6, 1965 to December 5th, 2023, author unknown. On December 5th, 2023, Sue Balenberg, a.k.a. Hollywood Art Chick, passed away in Los Angeles at the age of 58 years. Sue was an animator, painter, caricaturist, and mural artist. She was an avid scuba safety diver, civil servant, and lover of all animals, especially orphaned rats, pigeons, and lizards. Up until her final days, she was posting on social media to try to help a stranger find a lost cat. Sue was born in Decatur, Illinois, and attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she earned her BFA in art history with a minor in political science. She received an MFA in animation from the University of California, Los Angeles. She also studied at the American Animation Institute and the American Academy of Art. Sue lived and breathed her art. She grew up doodling and painting and encouraged her four younger siblings to join in the fun. From an early age, she was a frequent award winner at art shows. In college, she was an illustrator for the Solo Cup Company, and also created logos for their local businesses. She moved to Los Angeles in 1989 to attend UCLA and pursue her dream of becoming an animator. In her long career of over 30 years as an artist, Sue animated for many well-loved programs, including The Simpsons, Dilbert, Rugrats, King of the Hill, Duckman, and The Oblongs. She has designed t-shirts for Paul Frank and designed greeting cards. In recent years, she drew murals for towns across America, including Cranberry Township, PA, Pennsylvania, Cerritos, California, Henderson, North Carolina, and Shawnee, Kansas. She was a caricature artist for a company and family events in the Los Angeles area. She very rarely traveled without her sketchbook. Sue was well-loved by many, near and far, for her ready wit and charm. She was a natural coach and an unwitting cheerleader. She was a rare person who saw only the good in people. She was truly a beautiful person, inside and out. Her laugh was infectious. She always tried to make time to help others. She was survived by her loving boyfriend and childhood friend, Paul J. Burwell, and four siblings, Jonathan R. Balenberg, Urbana, Illinois, Jennifer L. Fife, Gainesville, Florida, Margaret A. Svenden, Sydney, Illinois, and Elizabeth W. Haig, San Jose, California. Services will be held in Los Angeles at a future date. That was Susan Elizabeth Balenberg, Balenberg, February 6, 1965 to December 5, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 19, 2023. All right, here is one more from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 17, 2023. Ken Brecker, 1945 through 2023, anthropologist and champion of L.A. Humanities by Jeremy Childs. In a single life, Kenneth Brecker lived many lives. 
the longtime president of the Library Foundation of Los Angeles, Brecker also spent more than a decade leading the Sundance Institute and served as Associate Artistic Director of the Mark Taper Forum in downtown Los Angeles. Each role provided him the opportunity to touch people's lives and embrace their mutual humanity, an ambition that sprang from his studies as a cultural anthropologist, according to those who knew him. Among those whose work and lives reflected his influence is journalist Susan Orlean, who credits Brecker with inspiring her 2018 bestseller, The Library Book, about the 1986 fire at the Los Angeles Central Library. Brecker had reached out to Orlean after she moved to L.A. and led her on a tour of the historic library in downtown Los Angeles, telling her the story of the famous fire that planted the seed for her book. He was perhaps the most luminous, vibrant person I've ever known, Orlean told the Times. Brecker died Monday of complications from cancer at the age of 78, according to Rebecca Rickman, his widow. Born in Philadelphia on October 4, 1945, Brecker got his start in anthropology at Cornell. While at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, he learned of an expedition to the Amazon that would uh, prove life-changing. Brecker would go on to spend two years exploring the vast Brazilian rainforest, living among 15 indigenous tribes during that period, where he was one of the first Americans to contact the remote Washua tribe. The experience shaped not only his life as an anthropologist, but also his worldview. He recounted his time in South America in his 1988 memoir, Too Sad to Sing, a memoir with postcards. In a forest that I knew to be inhabited by jaguars and snakes and grasses as sharp as razor blades and even hostile tribes, I had the sense of coming into my own house, he wrote. In public speaking appearances, he often made references to his training as an anthropologist, studying tribes and customs and belief systems to find the fundamental humanity that connects us all. He never lost sight of the people that he lived with for two years, said longtime friend Robert Marks. When he met strangers, whether in New York or Paris or Los Angeles or anywhere, it was just a variation of when he was a functioning anthropologist in Brazil that brought him this human perspective. Brecker moved to Los Angeles in 1974 after an invite by the Mark Taper Forum's founder and artistic director Gordon Davidson, who was staging a produ production of Christopher Hampton's play Savages. Brecker's work as a consultant on the play impressed Davidson so much that he hired him as associate artistic director, and Brecker went on to shape the theater's lineup into the 80s. He made it a priority to bring in a diversity of stories and perspectives. Among productions Brecker oversaw were the groundbreaking Chicano play Zoot Suit and the story of a deaf school and Children of a Lesser God, both of which premiered at the taper under Brecker's directive, a creative direction. To us, he was thinking outside the box, said Madeline Puzo, the taper stage manager at the time. But in retrospect, he was looking at the work we did at the taper as an anthropologist to explore a variety of human cultures. After leaving the taper in the mid-1980s, Brecker took a sabbatical in Paris before moving to Boston to lead the Boston Children's Museum. He followed that with a short stint heading the William Penn Foundation, a Philadelphia-based philanthropic organization. 
1996, Robert Redford recruited Brecker to be the executive director of the Sundance Institute, where he served for 13 years. His time at Sundance saw the creation of the Institute's documentary program and documentary fund. The famed film festival posted a tribute to Brecker on its Facebook page Thursday. An anthropologist, author, road scholar, collector of eccentric objects, and passionate believer in the transformation power, transformative power of art, Ken supported the creation of Sundance's New Frontier Program, doc, uh, Documentary Fund, and Film Music Program, while fostering the growth of our art artist development programs, particularly internationally, the tribute read. In 2010, Brecker was named the president of the Library Foundation of Los Angeles, the private nonprofit arm of the LA Library. As Brecker explained in a 2011 interview with the Times, Pat Morrison, the city pays for the library's daily operation and upkeep, while the foundation is responsible for events and programming. Whether it's book clubs and guest readings, literacy programs, or after-school homework help. His advocacy at the foundation helped in the passage of Measure L, which increased funding to allow L.A. public libraries to be open seven days a week. Brecker's leadership was not without controversy. In 2018, he fired Louise Steinman, the founding director of the library's allowed lecture series, leading to calls for his resignation. Brecker wrote an op-ed in the Times defending his decision, arguing that the move was needed to reshape the lecture series into something that diversified its perspectives and broadened its audience. Allowed must change. Building on its strong tradition, we will expand this series to reach a larger section of LA's cultural life, he wrote, and we will do it by diversifying its events, its audience, and its venues to engage with all of Los Angeles. After a decade at the helm, he retired from the position in 2021. What the library is going to what the library is going to be by the end of the 21st century? It's up to us to figure out a way to sustain it, he told Morrison in 2011. Nothing to me is more at the forefront of thinking than libraries. Brecker survived by his wife Rebecca and their son Pierce Brecker. That was Ken Brecker, 1945 to 2023, anthropologist and champion of LA humanities by Jeremy Childs from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 17, 2023. All right, on to what's happening in Israel from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 16, 2023. Israeli troops mistakenly kill three hostages in Gaza. Visiting U.S. Envoy discusses a timetable for scaling back intense combat by Karen Love, Najib Jobain, and Basim Moreau. Rafa, Gaza Strip. Israeli troops Friday mistakenly shot to death three Israeli hostages in a battle-torn neighborhood of Gaza City. Meanwhile, an Israeli strike killed a Palestinian journalist in the south of the besieged territory. The deaths underscore the ferocity of, the, of Israel's onslaught in Gaza as a U.S. envoy was trying to persuade the Israelis to scale back their campaign. The hostages were killed in the Gaza area of Shajaya, where troops have been engaged in fierce fighting with Hamas militants. The soldiers mistakenly identify the three Israelis as a threat and open fire on them, according to the army's chief spokesman, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari. He said it was believed that the three had either fled their captors or been abandoned. Perhaps in the last few days or over the past day, we still don't know all the details. They reached this area. 
Hagari said. He said the army expressed deep sorrow and was investigating. Hamas and other militants abducted more than 240 people in the October 7 attack on southern Israel that triggered the war, and the hostages' plight has dominated public discourse ever since. Demonstrations in solidarity with the hostages and their families take place nearly every day. Late Friday, hundreds of protesters blocked Tel Aviv's main highway in a spontaneous demonstration calling for the hostages' return. Israeli political and military leaders often say that freeing all the hostages is their top aim in the war alongside destroying Hamas. Still, in the seven weeks since the ground troops pushed into northern Gaza, they have not rescued any hostages, though they freed one early in the conflict and have found the bodies of several. Hamas last month released more than 100 in swaps for Palestinian prisoners, and more than 130 are believed to remain in captivity. The hostages mistakenly killed Friday were identified as men who had been abducted by, from Israeli communities near the Gaza border. Yotam Hayim, 28, Samir Ta Ta Talalka, 25, and Alan Shamariz, 26. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the deaths an unbearable tragedy, vowing to continue with a supreme effort to return all the hostages home safely. In southern Gaza, the satellite channel Al Jazeera said an Israeli strike Friday in the city of Khan Yunus killed cameraman Samir Abu Dakwa and wounded the outlet's chief correspondent in Gaza, Wael Dauda. The two were reporting at a school that had been hit by an airstrike when a drone launched a second strike, the channel said. Speaking from a hospital bed, Dadao told Al Jazeera that he managed to walk to an ambulance. Dadao, whose wife and children were killed by an Israeli strike earlier in the war, was wounded by shrapnel in his right arm. But Abu Dakwa lay bleeding in the school and died hours later. An ambulance that tried to reach him had to <coughs> turn back because the roads were blocked by rubble, Al Jazeera said. Before Abu Dakwa's death, the Committee to Protect Journalists reported that at least 63 journalists had been killed in the war, 56 Palestinians, 4 Israelis, and 3 Lebanese. In other news, Israel said Friday that it was opening a military police investigation after an Israeli human rights group posted videos that appeared to show Israeli troops killing two Palestinians one who was incapacitated and the other unarmed during a military raid in a West Bank refugee camp. The B'Tselem human rights group accused the army of carrying out a pair of illegal executions. The security camera videos appeared to show two Israeli military vehicles pursuing a group of Palestinians in the Farah refugee camp in the north of the West Bank. One man who appears to be holding a red canister is gunned down by soldiers. B'Tselem uh, identified the man as Rami Jundab, 25. A military jeep then approaches Jundab as he lies on the ground bleeding and soldiers fire at him until he is still. Soldiers then approach a man identified by B'Tselem as Tar Shaheen, 36, as he cowers beneath the hood of a car. They shot him from close range. Israeli Gaza, Israel's Gaza offensive triggered by the attack of, on Israel in which Hamas militants killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, has flattened much of, the nor of northern Gaza and driven 80% of the territory's population of 2.3 million from their homes. 
The offensive has killed more than 18,700 Palestinians, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. Thousands more are missing and feared dead beneath the rubble. The U.S. and Israel have discussed a timetable for scaling back intense combat operations in the war against Hamas, though they agree that the fight will take months, an invoice said Friday, amid growing U.S. unease about the mounting death toll in Gaza. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to discuss the enclave's post-war picture, which could include bringing back Palestinian security for forces driving, driven from Gaza by Hamas in its 2007 takeover, according to a senior U.S. official. American and Israeli officials have been vague in public about how Gaza will be run if Israel achieves its goal of ending Hamas's control, and the idea floated as one of several, appeared to be the first time Washington offered some detail on its vision for security arrangements in the enclave. Any role for Palestinian security forces in Gaza is bound to elicit strong opposition from Israel, which seeks to maintain an open-ended security presence there and says it won't allow a post-war foothold for the Palestinian Authority, which administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank but is deeply unpopular with Palestinians. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant told Sullivan it would take months to destroy Hamas, but did not say whether his estimate referred to the current phase of heavy airstrikes and ground battles. Sullivan said Friday that he discussed a timeline with Netanyahu and Israel's war cabinet that such and that such conversations would continue during an upcoming visit by U.S. Secretary, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III. President Biden's administration has expressed unease over Israel's failure to reduce civilian casualties and its plans for the future of Gaza. But the White House continues to offer a wholehearted support for Israel with weapons, shipments, and diplomatic backing. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, Biden said Thursday when asked if he wants Israel to scale down combat by the end of the month. Not going to stop, not going, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. A deadly Hamas ambush on Israeli troops in Gaza City this week showed the group's resilience and called into question whether Israel can defeat it without wiping out the entire territory. Israeli airstrikes and tank shelling continued Thursday night into Friday, including in the southern city of Rafah, part of the shrinking areas of densely populated Gaza to which Palestinian civilians had been told by Israel to evacuate. At least one person was killed according to an Associated Press journalist who saw the body arriving at a local hospital. Sullivan met Friday with the boss who lost control of Gaza when Hamas drove out his security forces in 2007. The U.S. has said it eventually wants to see the West Bank and Gaza under a unified Palestinian government as a precursor to a Palestinian state, an idea soundly rejected by Netanyahu, who leads a right-wing government that is opposed to Palestinian statehood. Palestinian officials have said they will consider a post-war role in Gaza only in the context of concrete U.S. backed steps toward Palestinian statehood. The Palestinian Authority Prime Minister said it's time for the United States to deal more firmly with Israel, particularly on calls for negotiations for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now that the United States has talked uh, the talk, we want Washington to walk the walk, 
Mohammed Shetaye said Thursday, the United States cannot deliver Israel, who can? That was Israeli troops mistakenly killed three hostages in Gaza by Karen Laub, Najib Jobain, and Bassem Moreau from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Saturday, December 16, 2023. Laub, Jobain, and Moreau write for the Associated Press. Right here is a follow-up story to that from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Monday, December 18, 2023. Allies press Israel for truce after hostages' deaths. Military's mistaken killings elicit concern in Europe and protests at home amid U.S. unease over Gaza war by Wafa Sharafa and Sami Magdi. Dear al-Bala, Gaza Strip, Israel's government faced calls for a ceasefire from some of its closest European allies on Sunday after a series of shootings, including the mistaken killing of three Israeli hostages fueled global concerns about the conduct of the 10-week-old war in Gaza. Israeli protesters are urging the government to renew hostage negotiations with the Gaza Strip's Hamas rulers, whom it has vowed to destroy. The militant group triggered the war with its October 7 attack in southern Israel, killing at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapping more than 240 Israelis and foreign nationals. Israel could also face pressure to scale back major combat operations when U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Monday III visits Monday as Washington has expressed growing unease with civilian casualties even while providing vital military and diplomatic support. The war has flattened large parts of northern Gaza, killed thousands of civilians, and driven most of the population to the southern part of the besieged territory, where many are packed into crowded shelters and tent camps. Some 1.9 million Palestinians, nearly 85% of Gaza's population, have fled their homes. They are surviving off a trickle of humanitarian aid. Aid trucks driving in through the Rafah crossing with Egypt were surrounded by dozens of Palestinians, forcing some of the vehicles to stop before they climbed aboard, pulling boxes down and carrying them off. Other trucks appeared to be guarded by masked people carrying sticks. Israel said aid passed directly from Israel into Gaza for the first time Sunday, with 79 trucks crossing from Karim Shalom, where about 500 trucks entered daily before the war. An additional 120 trucks uh, entered via Rafah along with six trucks carrying fuel or cooking gas, said Wail Abu Amir, Palestinian Crossing's Authority spokesperson. Aid workers said, "Aid workers say it's still far from enough. They cannot deliver aid under a sky full of airstrikes." A spokesperson with the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, Juliet Talma, said on social media. The agency estimated that more than 60% of Gaza's infrastructure had been destroyed in the war. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel will continue to fight until the end, with the goal of eliminating Hamas which has controlled the Palestinian territory since 2007. The Israeli military said Sunday that it had discovered a large tunnel in Gaza close to what was once a busy crossing into Israel. Netanyahu has vowed to bring back an estimated 129 hostages still in captivity. Anger over the mistaken killings of hostages is likely to increase pressure on him to renew Qatar-mediated negotiations with Hamas over swapping more of the remaining captives for Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. 
Israeli media reported that David Barnea, the head of Israel's Mossad spy agency, met over the weekend with Qatar's Prime Minister, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Al Thani, who has mediated with Hamas to discuss renewed talks. Meanwhile, Israel has been defensively striking Hezbollah targets in Lebanon, said Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, an Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson. The group has ramped up attacks against Israel, he added, killing civilians and soldiers and displacing more than 80,000 Israelis from their homes. Hezbollah, a proxy of Iran, is dragging Lebanon into an unnecessary war that would have, devastated con have devastating consequences for the people of Lebanon, Hagari said in a statement. This is a war they, they did not, do not deserve. Hagari said Israel will continue to protect its borders until and unless a diplomatic solution is found and implemented. Gaza, meanwhile, saw telecommunication services gradually resume after a four-day blackout, the longest of several outages during the war. Aid groups say they complicate rescue efforts and make it even more difficult to monitor the toll on civilians. In Israel on Sunday, French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna called for an immediate truce aimed at securing the release of more hostages, getting larger amounts of aid into Gaza, and moving toward the beginning of a political solution. France's foreign ministry earlier said one of its employees was killed in an Israeli strike Wednesday on a home in Rafah. It condemned the strike, which it said had killed several civilians and demanded clarification from the Israeli authorities. The foreign ministers of the UK and Germany, meanwhile, called for a sustainable ceasefire, saying too many civilians have been killed. Israel will not win this war if its operations destroy the prospect of peace coexistence with Palestinians, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron and German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach wrote in the UK's Sunday Times. The U.S. Defense Secretary is set to travel to Israel to continue discussions on a timetable for ending the war's most intense phase. Israeli and U.S. officials have spoken of a transition to a more targeted strikes aimed at killing Hamas leaders and rescuing hostages without saying when it would occur. Scores of protesters set up tents outside the Defense Ministry in Tel Aviv on Saturday saying they would stay until the government resumed hostage negotiations with Hamas. The hostages are experiencing hell and they are in mortal peril, said Raz bin Ami, a hostage released in the last exchange. Israel must offer another hostage release deal. Hamas has said that no more hostages will be released until the war ends, and that in exchange it will demand the release of large numbers of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants. The militants freed over 100 more than the 240 hostages captured October 7 in exchange for the release of scores of Palestinian prisoners during a brief ceasefire in November. Nearly all freed on both sides were women and minors. Israel has rescued one hostage. Military officials said Saturday that the three hostages who were mistakenly shot by Israeli troops had tried to signal that they posed no harm. It was Israel's first such acknowledgement of harming hostages in a war that it says is largely aimed at rescuing them. The hostages all in their 20s, were killed Friday in the Gaza City area of Shajaya, where troops are engaged in fierce fighting with Hamas. 
An Israeli military official said the shootings were against the army's rules of engagement and were being investigated at the highest level. Israel says it makes every effort to avoid harming civilians and accuses the militant group of using them as human shields. Palestinians and rights groups have repeatedly accused Israeli forces of recklessly endangering civilians and firing on those who do not threaten them, both in Gaza and in the occupied West Bank, which has seen a surge of violence since the start of the war. Pope Francis on Sunday called for peace, saying unarmed civilians are being bombed and shot at, and this has happened inside the Holy Family Parish complex, where there are no terrorists but families, children, and sick people with disabilities, nuns. He spoke after the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem said two Christian women at a church compound in Gaza were killed by Israeli sniper fire. A British lawmaker, Leila Moran, said several family members were among hundreds sheltered in the compound. This is a church. It's a week before Christmas. This is Advent. This is an important time in the Christian family's religious calendar. And there is a sniper killing women and firing at children, she asserted. In discussions Saturday with representatives of the church community, no one reported a strike on the church or civilian casualties, the military said. It said that a review of its initial investigation had supported that. At least five Palestinians were killed during an Israeli raid on the West Bank town of Tolkarm, the Palestinian Authority Health Ministry said Sunday. In Gaza, Palestinians on several occasions have said Israeli soldiers opened fire at fleeing civilians. Hamas has claimed other hostages were killed by Israeli fire or airstrikes without presenting evidence. The Israeli offensive has killed more than 18,700 Palestinians, the health ministry in the Hamas-run territory said Thursday. It has not been able to update the toll since then because of the communications blackout. There was allies press Israel for truce after hostages' deaths by Wafa Sharafa and Sami Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 18, 2023. Sharafa Magdi and Magdi write for the Associated Press and reported from Deir al-Bala and Cairo, respectively. All right, here's this one from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December 21st, 2023. Israel says it uncovered Hamas Command Center. The military boasts of exposing a vast underground complex as ceasefire talks gain momentum by Joseph Fetterman, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi. Jerusalem. The Israeli military said Wednesday that it had uncovered a major Hamas command center in the heart of Gaza City, inflicting what it described as a serious blow to the Islamic militant group as pressure grows in Israel to scale back its devastating attacks on the Gaza Strip. The army said it had exposed the center of a vast underground network used by Hamas to move weapons, militants, and supplies throughout the coastal enclave. Israel has said destroying the tunnels is a major objective of its war in Gaza. The announcement came as Hamas's top leader arrived in Egypt for talks aimed at brokering a temporary ceasefire and a new deal for Hamas to swap Israeli hostages for Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. Israel's leaders have vowed to press ahead with its offensive, launched in response to a cross-border attack by Hamas on October 7th that killed at least 1,200 people and saw 240 others taken hostage. Israel's airstrikes 
and ground attacks have devastated much of the northern Gaza Strip, killing above 20,000 Palestinians and driven some 1.9 million, nearly 85% of the population, from their homes. The widespread destruction and heavy civilian death toll have drawn increasing internal, international calls for a ceasefire. The United States, Israel's closest ally, has continued its support while urging greater effort to protect Gaza civilians. But in some of the toughest American language yet, Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken on Wednesday called on Israel to scale back its operation. It's clear that the conflict will move and needs to move to a lower intensity phase, Blinken said. He said the U.S. wants to see more targeted operations with smaller levels of forces focused on specific targets, such as Hamas's leaders and the group's tunnel network. As that happens, I think you'll see, as well as the harm done to civilians, also decrease significantly, he said. His comments were more pointed than statements by Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III, who, in a visit to Israel this week, said the U.S. would not dictate any time frames to its ally. The Israeli military uh, escorted Israeli supporters into Palestine Square in the heart of Gaza City to show off what it described as the center of Hamas's tunnel network. Military commanders boasted that they had uncovered offices, tunnels, and elevators used by Hamas top leaders. The military released videos of underground offices and claimed to have found a wheelchair belonging to Hamas's shadowy military commander, Mohammed Deif, who has not been seen in public in years. The Army's chief spo- uh, spokesman, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, said the military had found a vast underground complex. They all used this uh, infrastructure routinely during emergencies and also at the beginning of the war on October 7, he said. He said the tunnels stretched across Gaza and into major hospitals. The claims could not be independently verified. Hagari also indicated that Israel was winding down in northern Gaza, including Gaza City, where it has been battling Hamas militants for weeks. He said the army had moved into a final remaining Hamas stronghold, the Gaza City neighborhood of Tufa. But the army also acknowledged a significant misstep. An investigation into a soldier's mistaken shooting of three Israeli hostages in Gaza found that five days before the shooting, a military search dog with a body camera had captured audio of them shouting for help in Hebrew. Hagari said the recording was not reviewed until after the hostages were killed while trying to make themselves known to Israeli forces. The incident has sparked an uproar in Israel and put pressure on the government to reach a new deal with Hamas. The military chief has said the shooting was against its rules of engagement. The Israeli military campaign now is largely focused on southern Gaza, where it says Hamas's leaders are hiding. We will continue the war until then. It will continue until Hamas is destroyed, until victory, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a video statement, whoever thinks we will stop is detached from reality. As Netanyahu vowed to continue the war, there were new signs of progress in ceasefire talks. Hamas's top leader, Ismail Haniyeh, traveled to Cairo for talks on the war, part of a flurry of diplomacy. In recent days, top Israeli, American, and Qatari officials have also held ceasefire talks. These are very serious discussions and negotiations, 
and we hope that they lead somewhere. The White House's National Security Council spokesman, John F. Kirby, said aboard Air Force One while traveling with President Biden to Wisconsin. Biden, however, indicated a deal was still a ways off. There's no expectation at this point, but we are pushing, he said. Asked about the rising death toll in Gaza, Biden said, it's tragic. Hamas says no more hostages will be, will be released until the war ends. It is insisting on the release of large numbers of Palestinian prisoners, including high-level militants convicted in deadly attacks for remaining captives. Osama Hamdan, a senior Hamas official in Beirut, said the efforts right now are focused on how to stop this aggression, especially that our enemy now knows that it cannot achieve any of its goals. Israel has rejected Hamas's demands for a mass prisoner release, but it has a history of lopsided in, uh, exchanges for captive Israelis, and the government is under heavy pressure, heavy public pressure, to bring the hostages home safely. Egypt, along with Qatar and the U.S., helped mediate a week-long ceasefire in November, in which Hamas freed more than a hundred hostages in exchange for Israel's release of 240 imprisoned Palestinians. Hamas and other militants are still holding an estimated 129 captives, though about 20 are believed to have died in captivity. United Nations Security Council members are negotiating an Arab-sponsored resolution to halt the fighting in some way to allow for an increase in desperately needed humanitarian aid del uh, deliveries to Gaza. A vote on the resolution, first scheduled on Monday, was pushed back again Wednesday in hopes of getting the U.S. to support it or allow it to pass after it vetoed an earlier ceasefire call. Cell phone and internet service was down across Gaza again Wednesday, an outage that could complicate efforts to communicate with Hamas leaders in the territory who went into hiding after October 7. The war has led to a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Tens of thousands of people are crammed into shelters and tent camps amid shortages of food, medicine, and other basic supplies. Israel's foreign minister traveled to Cyprus to discuss the possibility of establishing a maritime corridor that would allow the delivery of large amounts of humanitarian aid to Gaza. At least 46 people were killed and more than 100 wounded early Wednesday as Israel continued to bombard the urban Jabalia refugee camp near Gaza City, said Munir Borsh, a senior health ministry official. In southern Gaza, several women and children were among those brought into Nasser Hospital in the city of Khan Yunus after strikes overnight and into Wednesday. A boy could be seen sobbing next to his wounded mother who was laid out on a stretcher before being lifted up and placed on her chest. At least five people were killed and dozens injured in another strike that hit three homes and a mosque in the southern city of Rafah on Wednesday, health officials said. Health officials in Hamas-run Gaza said the death toll since the start of the war has risen to more than 20,000. They did not distinguish between, between civilian and combatant deaths. Israel's military says 134 of its soldiers have been killed in Gaza in the Gaza ground offensive. Israel says it has killed some 7,000 militants without providing evidence and blames civilian deaths on Hamas, saying it uses them as human shields. That was Israel says it uncovered Hamas command center by Joseph Fetterman, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December 21st, 2023.
Fetterman, Sharafa, and Magdi write for the Associated Press and reported from Jerusalem, Dira Albala, Gaza Strip, and Cairo, respectively. AP writers Melanie Lidman in Tel Aviv, Basim Maru in Beirut, and Amir Madani aboard Air Force One contributed to this report. Let's go to an opinion article. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 17, 2023. Israel's bombing of Gaza tests Germany's never-again ethos by Manuel Schwab. The principle of never-again is built into the very foundations of German national identity. The reason should be obvious. German disavowal of its past through commemoration has become something of a gold standard for countries that have perpetrated unforgivable crimes. And yet, since October 7, Holocaust memory has increasingly been invoked into German, Germany to suppress debate on Hamas's militants' massacres of that day in Israel and the brutalities the Israel Defense Forces have meted out against Gaza Strip civilians in aftermath. It appears that something has gone terribly awry in Germany's famed culture of memory. In Germany, uh, it has become virtually impossible to stand against the idea of violent targeting of Gazan civilians without being smeared with suspicions of anti-Semitism. The German-based Heinrich Boll Foundation reportedly withdrew its support from co-sponsoring the Hannah Arendt Prize for political thought to journalist Masha Gessen because of an essay they wrote this month in The New Yorker in which they drew parallels between Gaza and a Jewish ghetto. While this started before October 7, what has been remarkable in the present crackdown is the inordinate number of Jews and Israelis in Germany now under attack for speaking out against the killing of civilians in Gaza. Even more disturbing is how many of them are being framed as anti-Semitic by German authorities who similarly censor Arab and Middle Eastern communities who critique Israel. At stake here is not only the German process of reckoning with its own past, but also the very fate of never again as an orientation around which we can make common cause against ongoing atrocity. Germany's memory culture rests on a basic conviction that our ancestors are supposed to keep us honest in both their virtues and their sins and how they lived, died, killed, were killed, took and were taken from. It is based on a conviction that public memory includes reckoning with both the unrepented crimes and the unredeemed injuries of our ancestors and asks us to place these concerns at the center of our ethical imagination as we address not just the past, but also the present. German law thus forbids denial of the Holocaust. The country also criminalizes expressing racist and anti-Semitic hate speech, as well as denying war crimes and genocide. Many in the international community have come to admire Germany's willingness to look inward for the enduring legacies of national crimes, and they would even like to see never again expanded into an ethic that could be applied anywhere rather than limited to a national or ethic scope. In Germany, however, the promise of never again has contracted. Too often, German authorities now surveil uh, newly arrived immigrants out of fear that they might import anti-Semitism into the country, as well as the growing number of Jews who insist on their right not to see atrocities committed in their name. In Germany, Jews and Arabs are again placed under a special scrutiny. Over the last few years, for instance, demonstrations commemorating the anniversary of the Nakba, where Palestinians were displaced and Israel was created in 1948, have largely been outlawed. 
of those who defied this man. Many were members of Judish Stemi, or a Jewish voice, a group of Jewish activists expressing solidarity with Palestinians. In last year's Nakba demonstration, the majority of those arrested were Jewish members of the group. Since then, things have only escalated. A leading member of Judesh Stimi, who was born and raised in Israel, was recently detained for a solidarity protest in which she held a sign in a Berlin public square that read, As a Jew and Israeli, stop the genocide in Gaza. We can question the value of this term, uh, the term the protester used on her sign to describe what's happening in Gaza, but it's a debate we need to have. Meanwhile, an award ceremony at the Frankfurt Book Fair honoring Palestinian novelist Adanya Shibli was canceled by organizers in October. Her novel, Minor Detail, explores a historical murder of a Bedouin Palestinian girl by Israeli soldiers, a topic considered too incendiary. A few weeks later, the Federal Agency for Civic Education canceled a symposium titled We Still Need to Talk, which has been planned for early which had been planned for early December. The event was intended to start a conversation about how the paradigm of Holocaust memory could create a space for reflection and solidarity, embracing commonalities and differences between the Shoah and other events of historical trauma, colonial genocides, the legacy of American slavery, for instance. In a statement, the organizers, who included Michael Rothberg, chair in Holocaust Studies at UCLA, and Candice Brates, a Berlin-based artist whose work grapples with uh, global geographies of race, opposed the decision to call off the event. Consider what we are seeing in these events. German police are arresting Jews for political expression criticizing the state of Israel, all in the name of combating anti-Semitism, while the German descendants of perpetrators, virtually all of us are, are declaring a proprietary expertise accusing Jews and Arabs alike of not understanding the political purchase of anti-Semitism in our present. Out of a laudable conviction that we, as German descendants of perpetrators, sometimes victims, have a special responsibility when we see violence meted out against the defenseless has emerged as a proprietary relationship to the aspiration of never again. From subjecting the legacies of their own perpetration to scrutiny, German political institutions are increasingly directing scrutiny at others, framing anti-Semitism as a problem to be called out in others. If the optics here do not inspire a deep sense of unease, perhaps it is we who have not grasped the basic lessons of German history. I have spent much of my scholarly career working in countries where the naming of ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and genocide are fiercely debated as political violence rolls out on unchecked. I am no stranger to the fact that, as the often abused term of phrase goes, it's complicated. But the current situation in Germany makes a few things painfully clear. Public memory, the way pasts are kept as common parts of our shared social fabric, is a critical resource without which the very idea of a shared humanity is inconceivable. Public memories, as such, can never be owned. The profound intergenerational grief that comes in the wake of historical traumas is a painful legacy, but a conversation about the contemporary meaning of that legacy cannot be avoided if never again is to remain a political ethic responsive to our present. We need to keep having this conversation, lest we resign, our, resign ourselves into a world in which never again will, only meet, will always only mean never again next time. 
that was Israel's bombing of Gaza tests Germany's never again ethos by Manuel Schwab from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 17, 2023. Manuel Schwab is a professor of anthropology at the American University in Cairo and lives and works part-time in Berlin. All right, and now here is this article from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 15, 2023. The Fall and Rise of U.S. Anti-Semitism. Using, used, to, used to seeing this country as a safe haven, American Jews are deeply unsettled amid the war in Gaza. By David Lauder and Jaweed Kalim. Like a plague that long lay dormant, anti-Semitism has sprung back to virulence in the U.S., deeply unsettling American Jews, many of whom have viewed it as a relic of past generations destined to fade away. The upsurge began before the war in Gaza and has now accelerated, bringing intense debate over how to define an ancient hatred in modern times. In particular, where robust opposition to Israel or Zionism crosses the line into anti-Semitism. A large share of the recent debate has focused on college and university campuses generating congressional hearings and costing at least one prominent university president her job. Incidents of hatred aimed at Jews, however, go far beyond campuses. Recent anti-Semitic acts nationwide include graffiti and vandalism at Jewish stores, restaurants and institutions, shots fired in the vicinity of synagogues, and assaults on people wearing uh, wearing yarmulkes, star of David Penance, or other Jewish apparel. The cumulative impact has had a profound effect on the psychology of the American Jewish community. In a survey released last month by, by the Jewish Federations of North America, nearly 9 in 10 American Jews and more than 6 in 10 Americans overall said they believed there was more anti-Semitism in the U.S. now than five years ago. Asked to consider just the last few weeks, one-third said the, of the general public population, but more than 7 in 10 Jews said they believed anti-Semitism was on the increase, not just nationally, but in their local communities. 4 in 10 American Jews said they worried very much or all the time about their personal safety because of their race, religion, or other characteristics, a level more than twice as high as the general population, according to the survey conducted by the New York-based Venison Strategy Group. Strikingly, the share was higher among younger Jews than older ones. I think it's important to recognize in this moment how vulnerable and fearful many Jews feel, UCLA political science professor Dove Waxman said in a recent roundtable discussion about anti-Semitism convened by the Times. There's really a deep, widespread sense of alarm, he added. It's intensified over the last two months, but it's been really growing for a number of years now. Shira Dicker, 63, a self-described politically and theologically liberal Jew, said she grew up in New York thinking that people who sounded alarms on anti-Semitism were sometimes exaggerating. Now I realize that more people hate Jews than I thought, she said. To be Jewish in America right now is to feel a sense of emergency. Rabbi Jason Rubenstein, Jewish chaplain at Yale University, hears students express similar feelings. Many young Jews grew up with the belief that anti-Semitism was a vestigial memory. In the U.S., he said, now there's a feeling of having woken up in a different world, one that feels technically destabilized. When Jeffrey Kopstein left the University of Toronto in 2015 to join the political science faculty at UC Irvine, friends warned him, that the campus has a reputation 
for significant amounts of anti-Semitism as well as strong opposition to Zionism, the belief that Jews, like other groups, have the right to a homeland of their own and that it should be in the territory where Judaism began in ancient times. Curious if that was true, he set out to study campus opinion. Using a battery of questions to probe for beliefs on subjects such as hidden Jewish power, where the Jews are greedier than other people, where the Jews are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus and other indicators of anti-Semitism, Kopstein and an another researcher, Rachel Shenhav Goldberg, surveyed a random set of undergraduates. They also asked a separate set of questions about attitudes toward Israel and the Palestinians. Students on average ranked fairly high on anti-Israel sentiment. The results on anti-Semitism were less clear-cut. About 25% showed fairly high levels of anti-Semitic beliefs, though only about 2% were anti-Semitic across the board. And while there was somewhat overlap between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, the two were also clearly separate. Some students with strong anti-Israel views espoused significant anti-Semitic beliefs, others didn't. There was even a small group of students mostly religiously conservative Christians who strongly supported Israel while espousing a high number of anti-Semitic tropes. Those results are similar to what recent surveys have found in the general U.S. population. One conducted last year by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago for the Anti-Defamation League reported that about one in five adult Americans embrace a significant level of anti-Semitic belief double the level of the previous year and the highest in more than a generation. The survey found that only 3% of the population agreed with all the anti-Jewish tropes it asked about. As ADL researchers noted, however, 3% of the U.S. population corresponds to roughly 8 million people, significantly more than the roughly 5.8 million Americans who are Jewish. The FBI consistently finds two groups to be the targets of the most hate crimes in the U.S., black people and Jews. The study also found that anti-Semitic beliefs remain more common on the political right, while opposition to Zionism is more common on the left, and that acceptance of anti-Semitic statements is more common among people who don't know any Jews and goes hand-in-hand -hand with beliefs in other con conspiratorial theories. Notably, Kopstein's study of students found no difference between those surveyed in their first semester and those who had been on campus for four years, evidence that, despite widespread claims by conservative critics of higher education, college doesn't incubate anti-Semitic views. The U.S. doesn't have a university problem, Kopstein said, it has an anti-Semitism problem. This year, Kopstein, who directs UC Irvine's Jewish Studies program, expanded his research to other UC campuses, getting samples of students from administrations at individual schools, except for Berkeley, which refused to participate. His most recent survey happened to be in the field during late September and early October, giving him a before and after view of how students responded to the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel and in the early days of Israel's response. As he expected, anti-Israel sentiment rose a lot. When it came as a, what came as a surprise was that anti-Semitism increased too. It's not gigantic, but it's there, he said. One might have expected the deaths of 1,200 Israeli civilians to trigger a degree of sympathy for Jews, he said. Instead, the opposite happened. I call that an empathy fail. Uh, measuring anti-Semitic beliefs can be challenging. 
but defining what constitutes an anti-Semitic act has proved even more difficult, especially when the question turns into the line uh, between anti-Zionist speech and expressions of anti-Semitism. In 2016, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, a quasi-governmental international body, agreed on a working definition of anti-Semitism that 43 countries have incorporated into their own policies. The Trump administration adopted the IHRA definition in 2019, as have about half of U.S. states. Denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, such as by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor, is an example of anti-Semitism, the IHRA said. So, it added, is applying double standards by requiring of Israeli behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Critics say that casts too wide a net, stigmatizing criticism of Israel that they view as legitimate. Rival definitions, including one proposed in 2021 by a group of some 200 scholars, aim to provide more room for robust, even a harsh debate. Hostility to Israel could be an expression of anti-Semitism animus, or it could be a reaction to a human rights violation, or it could be the emotion that a Palestinian person feels on account of their experience at the hands of the state, the scholars said in their statement, known as the Jerusalem Declaration. The statement declared that it is anti-Semitic to hold Jews collectively responsible for Israel's conduct or to require people because they are Jewish to publicly condemn Israel or Zionism, for example, at a political meeting. But, it added, criticizing or opposing Zionism as a form of nationalism are arguing for a variety of constitutional arrangements for Jews and Palestinians in the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean is not anti-Semitic in all cases. It is not anti-Semitic to support arrangements that accord full equality to all inhabitants between the river and the sea, whether in two states, a binational state, unitary democratic state, federal state, or in whatever form, it said. Andrew Klein, 29, a Jewish activist who has joined anti-Israel protests supporting a ceasefire in Gaza, takes that view. Saying Israel is racist is not anti-Jewish. It is literally just describing the practices by Israel, he said. Anti-Semitism is real, but there are plenty of things happening right now that are called anti-Semitism that really aren't. In the public arena, that line is often clouded by politics. In one recent case, people taking part in a pro-Palestinian march through downtown Philadelphia stopped outside of Goldie, a restaurant owned by a well-known Israeli chef, Michael Solomonov, and chanted slogans accusing him of participating in genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, where local health authorities say more than 18,600 people have been killed in more than two months of warfare. Organizers of the march later said they had targeted the restaurant because of Solomonov's public statements in support of Israel and his fundraising on behalf of United Hatzalah, an ambulance service that provides emergency medical assistance in Israel, including to members of the army. The protest drew condemnation from the White House, Pennsylvania's governor, political leaders from both parties, and the ADL. Vandalism of a Jewish business uh, isn't political protest, said Jonathan Greenblatt, the chief executive of the ADL. Boycotts have historically targeted the Jewish community at times of crisis, and it's alarming that it's happening again now. Several Jewish Angelinos who participated in the Times Roundtable said they were unconvinced, noting that the nonviolent protest didn't target Jews in general, but a specific individual 
who had taken a public pro-Israel stance and that shouting slogans doesn't constitute vandalism. A more ambiguous event took place recently in Westbrook, Maine, a suburb of Portland. After a resident complained about a star of David in the town's holiday display, saying it was an offensive endorsement of the war in Gaza because it also appears on the Israeli flag, city officials replaced the star with a dreidel. The director of the local Jewish Federation said she accepted the decision. It's possible that someone would ask for the removal because they are anti-Semitic, but it's also possible that it's not the reason, said Molly Kern Rose, who leads the Jewish Community Alliance of Southern Maine. I would rather have approached this as a moment of interfaith education. How can we use this moment as an opportunity to learn about other cultures and not to find fear when we don't need to? Some of the hardest questions involved college campuses, where clashes are almost inevitable as students and faculty routinely live and work among people with drastically different opinions. University officials around the country say they've been confronted with increasing displays of both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia since the Gaza War began. The question of how to adequately regulate those encounters plunged the presidents of the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, and MIT into controversy earlier this month as they testified before Congress. Equating calls for intifada, an Arabic word meaning uprising with genocide, Representative Elise Stefanek, Republican of New York, asked the three presidents if advocating for a genocide of Jews would violate university policies against harassment. Each of the presidents tried to draw a distinction between statements targeting an individual, such as a slogan written across the door of a Jewish student's room, and generalized ones, such as a slogan chanted at a, at a rally. If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, said Penn's then-president, Elizabeth Mago. It, she then added a phrase that rocketed through social media. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. The cautiously worded comments drew widespread condemnation and led to Mago's resignation a few days later. Harvard's President Claudine Gay, who gave a similar response, publicly apologized in an interview with the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper on campus. Gay said that she should have had the presence of mind to return to my guiding truth, which is that calls for violence against our Jewish community, threats to our Jewish students, have no place at Harvard and will never go unchallenged. On Monday, Harvard's governing board, after a lengthy closed-door meeting, announced support for her. The U.S. Department of Education announced Tuesday it was opening investigations into allegations of discrimination based on shared ancestry at UCLA, UC San Diego, Stanford, and three other universities. The department did not specify what the allegations were, but it has opened investigations of 21 colleges and universities since the start of the war, part of what the department described in a statement as an effort to combat an alarming nationwide rise in reports of anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, and other forms of discrimination and harassment. Officials at many campuses have said they're trying to balance the need to protect students against harassment while upholding principles of free speech. Critics, including, but not limited to, many conservative political figures have charged the universities with double standard, saying they support free speech when Jews are the targets, but have often suppressed speech aimed at other minority groups. What's behind the rise in anti-Semitism and how to respond to it are now much debated topics in Jewish communities. Some just talk of retreating into safe spaces and strengthening ties with one another.
Melanie Rosenthal, a real estate agent in West Hollywood, has embraced her Jewish identity while at the same time becoming cautious about public displays because of fears for her safety. On social media and accounts for Uber and Lyft, she has changed her last name so it no longer reads as a common Jewish name. Rosenthal has also removed mezuzahs from her property. There are Hanukkah events, but I'm a little scared to go out to them, said Rosenthal, 41. Robert Dale, a corporate recruiter in West Palm Beach, Florida, has instructed his son to be more discreet about his faith. My 28-year-old son has been wearing a Jewish star around his neck for years, and I told him to take it off, said Dale, 58. He's 6'2", all muscles, and I told him, I don't care how big or strong you are, a gun can kill anybody. Others, including leaders of Jewish organizations, advocate efforts to reach out to other groups. If we're going to succeed, if we're going to exist, it will be because this generation continues to lean into each other and because our leadership at the highest levels say, says there's no place for hate for anybody, said Serena Oberstein, executive director of Jewish World Watch and one of the participants in the Times Roundtable. As for causes, researchers cite several changes in society that may each have contributed. For decades after World War II, Members of the Holocaust created a taboo on open expressions of anti-Semitism, wrote Michael Berenbaum, a Los Angeles-based historian of the Holocaust. That has faded the Nazi, as the Nazi era has receded into the past. Others note a general cor- coarsening of public life, a change that former President Trump has benefited from and promoted. Trump made it okay for people to say things they used to know they shouldn't say, said Mark Melman, a prominent Democratic pollster, and head of the super PAC Democratic Majority for Israel. For some people, that legitimization spills over from speech to action, he added. There's also the general decline of trust in institutions and dissatisfaction with the state of the country that has shaped political attitudes for the last two decades. When so many people think things have gone wrong, it's time to bring out the scapegoats, Melman said. Jews have always been the scapegoats. That was The Fall and Rise of U.S. Anti-Semitism by David Lauder and Jawid Kalim from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 15, 2023. All right, let's turn to some the entertainment news now and go into this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, December 14, 2023. Levy putting a unique spin on film music. In an exclusive interview, the score of Jackie, Zola, and Under the Skin discusses working with Jonathan Glazer and the process for The Zone of Interest by Tim Grieving. Once upon a time, Micah Levy said hello to the world through the hose of a vacuum cleaner. As a founder of the English pop group Mikachu and The Shapes, Levy strummed a tiny, detuned thrift store guitar and sang fragmentary songs uh, in which laptop samples collided with real industri- industrial objects like the vacuum that Levy would use to lower their voice and sort of sound satanic, they explained. It was definitely bad for me, Levy says. Knocked off maybe a couple of years, but you know, all in the name of art. Levy, droll British non-binary, has carved out a fitting outry of musical trajectory going from the London underground, where Bjork and the Flaming Lips were among early fans, to true renegade credibility as one of the most daring and sweet genre composers in film. Their latest achievement, the score for Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest in Theaters Friday, is both impossible to describe and extricable from the film's morbid power. This, despite the fact 
that there's very little of it in the movie. The vast majority of Zone, which documents the quotidian family life of a German man who lives in an idyllic garden on the other side of the wall from Auschwitz, where he is Camp Commandant, has no score other than a few punctuations of an alien-sounding vocal effect. But the movie is bookended by Levy's contributions, opening in complete blackness and, and an oozing sound bath of warped voices and synthesizers and concluding with a six-minute audio train ride through hell. He's not worried or frightened of anything, says Levy of Glazer, both a collaborator and a friend. That's sort of like, you've got an opportunity, don't F waste it. Asked how he elicited this particular score from Levy, the director is as enigmatic as his film. I can never remember where or how we start, Glazer said via email. It's just really an, an ongoing conversation, like taking a nice long walk together. Levy, 36, is in Los Angeles to do some limited promotion for the film and has just survived several post-screening Q&As, a nightmare for an introvert who doesn't love to gab. Levy isn't meek, per se, but they have a, the slightly nervous disposition of a bird caught in a house, absentmindedly twirling their brown curls and mostly avoiding eye contact. In a brown industrial work shirt, blue jeans, and thick black boots, Levy rolls a homemade cigarette following our interview like they earned a smoke break after a difficult shift. We met in a small studio in West Hollywood, bustling with publicists and film crews and craft services. Levy with the workwear, outfit, and southern English accent seems as out of place as in this showbiz environment as Scarlett Johansson's bombshell Alien did and the far reaches of Scotland in Under the Skin, Levy's film scoring debut. The musicians suggested we escape to the unglamorous park across the street, where we sit on some dirty bleachers in the hot December sun as dogs chase frisbees and children babble on a nearby swing set. Levy has always found the comfort where most people are uncomfortable. Born to musicians, their mother was a cello teacher, and their father, Eric, a pianist and respected scholar of Third Reich era music, Levy grew up in the London suburb of Surrey, often feel like an outsider. They played violin and attended the precious Purcell School as prestigious Purcell School as a kid, turning up on the first day in a football uniform, complete with shin guards. Levy watched Disney movies and rom-coms growing up and even tried writing fake romantic orchestral music but as a teenager got turned on to the eccentricities of Captain Beefheart and the Californian composer Gary Harry Parch. A gay man who lived during the Great Depression, sometimes without a home, Parch broke ranks with the established pitched system prescribed in Western classical music. It's kind of like things have been nipped and tugged to fit the piano, Levy says, and he was looking for fr uh, freedom. Parch was also a carpenter and built his own instruments, allowing him to express music outside of the 12 standard tones, a clear precursor to Levy's work. A lot of the music that I like, Levy says, the people who make it, there's something in their spirit that I resonate with. Levy got started making loops in the sequencer logic and got into London's grime electronica scene, DJing and making mixtapes. While studying composition at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, they decided to form a band, Mikachu was a Pokemon reference, and the shapes were Levy's guide hall schoolmates, keyboardist Ray Sakan and drummer Mark Pell. Dropping out of university, 
Levy found a promoter in Matthew Herbert, an English electronic musician and producer who specialized in sampling everyday objects, and the band released their startling debut album, Jewelry, in 2009 to high praise. The Boston Globe declared Levy one of the brightest brains on the brink of pop, and the album led to festivals and tours, as well as commissions from London orchestras. Was it pop, though? Levy claimed so at the time, but today it's a different matter. I was just being antagonistic, they say. I don't think it's pop. Whatever it was, Levy was casually twisting the ears of both pop and classical and creating a sickly, beautiful language of their own, one that caught the attention of fellow Brit Glazer. Originally a music video auteur for groups like Radiohead and Blur, Glazer had already directed 2000's Sexy Beast and 2004's Birth and was making his alien arthouse picture under, his, under the skin, his first movie in what would be nine years. He wanted music by a newcomer. When Levy interviewed for the job, the 26-year-old felt that they had as good a chance as being hired as the CEO of a bank. But I think that kind of helped me get the gig, Levy says, because I went in with no nerves. It was a really life-changing experience. Soon audiences around the world heard a new universe, a wasp's nest of shivering strings and eerily sensual siren song that announced a major arrival on film scoring. Levy followed Glazer's instructions to try to get inside his beautiful alien's head and growing heart, but in some ways they just wrote music that sounded good. A lot of the time uh, when I'm making music, I'm just making music, Levy says. I'm not looking at any screen pictures or anything like that. John told me at that time, carry on making what you're into. In the meantime, Levy's otherworldly star rose. Chilean director Pablo Lorraine was a juror at the Venice Film Festival where Under the Skin premiered and was immediately smitten. He felt that if Levy had been born a few generations earlier, they would be in the record store next to Mendelssohn or Stravinsky, Lorraine told me in 2016. The filmmaker hired Levy for Jackie, his Natalie Portman-led biopic of Jacqueline Kennedy during the days after her husband's assassination, which Levy scored with a kind of drunken sweetness and sudden waves of grief again tampering with pitch and strings bending in unison. The score earned an Oscar nomination and Hollywood buzz, but Levy had, has, has been choosy, turning down offers and working with just a handful of iconoclastic filmmakers on mostly dark subjects. For Monos, the 2019 import by Colombian-Ecuadorian director Alejandro Landes about a guerrilla child army, Levy created a reoccurring motif by blowing into a bottle on a recording that also captured some random bird song. Levy followed that with a lean score from the Mangrove chapter of Steve McQueen's film series Small Axe, then did some skittering, damaged beats for Zola, Janiksa Bravo's 2020 adaptation of a Twitter's thread about a stripper's road trip to Florida. Levy remained close with Glazer, lending some ghostly music to the director's 2019 short film, The Fall, and a club-worthy track to his 2020 choreographed short, Strasbourg, 1518. All the while, Glazer was telling Levy about his adaptation of the Martin Amos novel, The Zone of Interest, about Nazi officer Rudolf Hotz. His take would turn out to be a closed-captioned TV-style chronicling of the banality of the industrialized genocide. Levy worked in Glazer's London studio for an entire year, hand-in-hand -hand with picture editor Paul Watts and sound designer Johnny Byrne, 
and initially wrote hours of warm, almost romantic music for the Haas family. But it acted like morphine for the viewer, Byrne remembers. It just was made to make you feel better, and it really did. Listening to it in isolation, it would make anyone feel great, but it did such an unusual thing to the images. Glazer recalls that any kind of music simply slid off the images. Byrne adds that because the images are so documentary, it had an effect at times of saying this didn't really happen because it's become sweetened or dramatized by the music. So Levy's score was jettisoned, and Byrne's faint but vivid soundtrack of the unseen horrors going on over the fence was all that remained. The music Levy wrote for the black screen prologue, though, was somewhat related to the warm family score stayed uh, serving as a descent uh, for the audience into the story of this family, and says Glazer to communicate the ideas of ears first. Levy took the forevery primordial sound of human voices, as they put it, and manipulated them with modern technology. They did the same for a series of what they call the yums, deep robotic belches that occur when Glazer switches uh, by, to thermal imagery of a resistance fighter collecting apples in the night. The only other music in the film accompanies a series of images of flowers that turns into a glowing red screen, and this gungy little sound comes on, says Levy. We call them zits. After Glazer's film cuts to black at the end, the music reemerges in a nightmarish march of yomping voices. Levy recorded a group of singers making different shrieks and whoops, then constructed a collage from them that slowly, gradually descends in pitch. It's literally that basic, Levy says, really like ABC. The effect, particularly in the wake of Glazer's movie, is shattering but also open to the ear of the beholder. To Emile Mosery, the Oscar-nominated composer of Minari, Levy's work is the most F-up music you've ever heard, beautiful and cathartic in how it delivers the horror you've been self-generating the whole film. To Glazer, it's alarm bells, walls shaking, a call to arms, a surfacing. Are these the voices of the victims of the hell-bound damned who murdered them? Levy doesn't intellectualize it like, like that, doesn't have a straightforward intention. I think they're really confusing, emotionally, Levy says. I don't understand the movie. Given what Mika Levy does so arrestingly, that may not be necessary. And that was Levy putting a unique spin on film music by Tim Grieving from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December 14, 2023. And speaking of the zone of interest, here is a review of the movie from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 15th, 2023. The zone of interest will get under your skin. Jonathan Glazer's masterpiece chills as it looks at family life next to a death camp by Justin Chang, film critic. What does a Nazi do on his day off? Things any of us might do, especially on a sunny afternoon. He takes the family out for a countryside picnic, watching them eat, play, and splash in a river, and then hiking with them back to the car. Along the way, a baby cries and squirms. Her older siblings bicker on the drive home. And what a home it is. A stately villa with many rooms and a gated garden where flowers, fruits, and vegetables grow in abundance. There is also a greenhouse a swimming pool, and a long concrete wall edged with barbed wire 
that only partially obstructs the family, uh, family's view of the concentration camp next door. The Zone of Interest, the brilliantly disquieting new movie from the English writer-director Jonathan Glazer, never brings us over that camp wall. It's a horror film that keeps its horrors rigorously hidden from view. But while restrained in form and implications, Zone is never coy and is surprisingly quick to disgorge its secrets. The campus Auschwitz, the Nazi is Rudolf Haas, played by Christian Friedel, the camp's longest-serving commandant. Glazer, drawing very loose inspiration from a 2014 novel by Martin Amos, confines his narrative focus to the period between 1943 and 44, and he grounds his spare story in the everyday rhythms and meticulously researched details of the Haas's family life. The quality of dread that he sustains over an eerie, precise 106 minutes stems from our disturbing realization of how quotidian that life is. Here is a house so well run that the business of mass murder happening a stone's throw away has been thoroughly, almost imperceptibly routinized. There's a darkly funny early shot of Rudolph riding a horse from his yard up to the gates of Auschwitz, completing the world's shortest, ghastliest commute. When he later blows out the candles on his birthday cake, surrounded by his wife Hedwig, Sandra Hewler, and their five children, you may not immediately notice the camp guard tower looming in the window behind him. By this point, your mind may have been summoned to the words banality of evil, the immortal phrase that Hannah Arendt coined in the 1960s when writing about Adolf Eichmann, one of Haas's Third Reich associates. The expression was much bandied about by critics, myself included, after the Zone of Interest premiered and won the Grand Prix at, Grand Prix at this year's Cannes Film Festival. But not all banality is created equal, and not all evil is created equal either. The specific achievement of this movie, recently named the Best Picture of the Year by the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, is to explore evil without glamorizing it, and to transmute the mundane into something quite quietly mesmerizing. Working mostly inside a recreation of the Haas's house built very close to the Auschwitz campsite, the meticulous production design is by Chris Odie. Glazer and his cinematographer Lucas Zaff, Ida, Cold War, composed their shots and filmed their actors using multiple hidden cameras. Much of the resulting imagery has the unsettling intimacy of high-tech surveillance footage, a quality reinforced by Paul Watts' editing which sometimes tracks the character's movements so assiduously as is, it's as if the cuts were being activated by motion sensors. The guiding impulse seems to have been to purge every hint of warmth or subject subjectivity from the frame and to subject the houses to a gaze as inhuman as their own. With a chilly austerity worthy of Stanley Kubrick or Michael Haneke, Glazer turns a static shot into a booby trap and a daily activity into an indictment. When Hedwig slips into her bedroom to try on a new fur coat, it takes a beat to register that the garment's owner has just been gassed and cremated. Groceries are wheelbarrowed to the front door by a delivery man whose significance you don't grasp until he turns his back, revealing the red prisoner's stripe on his jacket. At night, one of the Haas children sits in bed pouring over a stash of gold teeth, presumably a gift from Papa. Outside in the hail, 
Outside of the hall, his sister sits alone at a window, transfixed by the smoky orange glow she sees outside and the groaning mechanized roar she hears. What she hears, and what we hear, is of extraordinary significance. The zone of interest opens on a pitch black screen, and a blast of M Mika Levy's spare, demonic, demonically intense score. We could be listening to a druidic chance in hell, chords of lush operatic dreads and terror that might seem to disproportionate that might seem disproportionate to the becalmed images that follow. But even as Levy's orchestrations recede, an equally detail-rich music intrudes, bits of birdsong echoing footfalls and, before long, dogs barks, human screens, crackling flames, whistling trains, and the unmistakable sounds of gunshots. Even in simple scenes of the hosses at work or at play, this chilling aural undertow never ceases. As conceived by the sound designer Johnny Byrne, it's so vividly enveloping that you might want to heighten its impact by closing your eyes. Don't, though. Part of what gives the movie its queasy fascination is that we're not just observing its characters, but we're observing what they observe and inevitably question what they know. Some, though not all of the children, are, seem sweetly oblivious. Their parents' guilt is, of course, beyond doubt, and to say that they have turned a blind eye to their complicity or are in a state of denial is to extend them unconscionable charity. Hedwig, far from denying anything, seems to have long ago accepted the conditions of her family's wealth and comfort, none of which are lost on her as she no shows off her garden to her visiting mother and proudly proclaims herself the Queen of Auschwitz. That garden is crucial to unlocking the zone of interest. Metaphors may have no place at a concentration camp, but it's hard to look at this beautiful enclosed space and not see it perversely as the most despoiled of Edens. Here, in a short montage of intensely-hued floral close-ups, Glazer suggests an overpowering residue of death. The ashen remains that, that have descended on these flowers seeped into the soil and contaminated the fruits and vegetables. Day after day, the houses are turning more and more into what they eat and what they breathe and who they kill. Meanwhile, under cover of darkness, an unidentified young girl bravely sneaks out of her home at night and leaves apples for the prisoners of Auschwitz to find. These moments, shot with thermal imaging cameras, resemble black and white photo negatives, as if to suggest just how alien an act of goodness and resistance has become. The extremity of that formal choice can't help but remind me of Glazer's Under the Skin 2013, a bewitchingly creepy sci-fi thriller that was in some ways as radical a study in anti-empathy as this one. In that movie, an extraterrestrial being regards a screaming, abandoned human child with, a, with understandable indifference. The Ottomans in SS uniforms we see in the zone of interest have no such excuse. Here, a man sits stone-faced as he studies blueprints for a maximum efficiency crematorium, one of many technical innovations that will make cost one of the most prodigious, prodigious mass murderers in history. That we never see those murders, the bloodstains on Rodop's boots are as close as we get, renders Friedel's performance all the more galvanizing in its restraint, a restraint that the camera echoes by keeping its distance from the actors, registering body language as much as expression. Rudolph enters every situation with a calmly appraising eye. 
he shows affection to his kids and seldom raises his voice. As the lady of the house, Hewler cuts a loathsome, terrifying figure. She's a housefrau, Lady Macbeth, all inelegant vanity and hectoring manipulation. When Rudolf learns he's being transferred to a new post in Oranienburg, Germany, potentially appending their idyllic ex existence, Hedwig screams and rants and sheds crocodile tears. This is the life we've always dreamed of, she protests, a claim whose utter horror sinks into your marrow. From there, the zone of interest morphs into a kind of Third Reich boardroom thriller that plays at times like a pitch-black comedy about work-life balance. Are we meant to see ourselves reflecting, reflected in the hosses, hard-working souls who just want to live in their lovely house, throw fabulous parties, and enjoy their homegrown produce? Are we meant to be implicated in our own indifference, our willful avoidance of the barbarism in our own backyards? Yes and no, I suspect. The off-stated purpose of movies about history, and about the Holocaust in particular, is to allow the past to speak to the present. But something about the unnerving intelligence of Glazer's conception, the obsessive intensity with which he has excavated and reenacted this chapter of history, resists the unusual brumidus about finding the universal in the specific. When the real-life Haas was executed for his crimes in April 1947, the gallows was built just a hundred meters from this once-cherished house, a domestic paradise that operated in the shadow of an inferno. Could he see his house from where he stood on the gallows? And if so, did it fill him with one final bitter twinge of irony? The movie doesn't say. His psychology is of minimal concern or insight, and his death falls outside this movie's own temperable zone of interest. But the conclusion that Glazer arrives at, with a sudden formal rap rupture, is shattering in ways that defy easy description. More than any movie I've seen this year, or perhaps any year, the zone of interest leaves you pondering the magnitude of what the banality of evil has wrought, and the terrible, inconsolable void that it leaves behind. That was The Zone of Interest Will Get Under Your Skin, by Justin Chang, film critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 15, 2023. It's called The Zone of Interest in German and Polish with English subtitles. Rated PG-13 for thematic materials, some suggested material, and smoking. Running time, 1 hour 46 minutes. Playing at the AMC Century 15 Vista Theater. Here's another little article from the same Los Angeles Times calendar section, Friday, December 15, 2023. Former Disney CFO is up for its board by J. Clara Chan. Disney activist investor Nelson Peltz is trying once more to get a seat on Disney's board, this time alongside former Disney chief financial officer Jay Rasulo. Voters on the nominations are expected to take place next spring during Disney's 2024 shareholder meeting. In a press release announcing its intended nominees, Peltz's try-and fund management took aim at Disney chief executive Bob Iger's board for being too closely connected to a long-tenured CEO and too disconnected from shareholders' interests. Razzullo is a longtime Disney executive who left the company in 2015 after being passed over for the chief operating officer role, which went to Tom Statz. Before serving as chief financial officer, Razzullo oversaw Disney's parks and resorts business. The Disney I know and love has lost its way, Razzullo said in a statement. As independent voices in the boardroom, Nelson and I are confident that the combination 
of my decades of experience at Disney, Nelson's significant boardroom skills and history of driving pos positive strategic change and our combined consumer brand's expertise and financial acumen will be additive to the Disney board. Disney issued a statement Thursday saying it would review Tryon's proposed nominees. Disney has an experienced, diverse, and highly qualified board that is focused on the long-term performance of the company, strategic growth initiatives, including the online transformation of its businesses, the succession planning process, and increasing shareholder value, the Burbank Company said. The Governance and Nominating Committee, which evaluates director nominations, will review the proposed try-in nominees and provide a recommendation to the board as part of its governance process. Tryon does, didn't disclose which two board members the firm was seeking to replace, though the latest update of Peltz's proxy might uh, fight follows the recent appointments of Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman and former Sky CEO Jeremy Darrock to Disney's board. At the time, Tryon said it would revive its proxy fight because the two appointments were not sufficient enough to restore investor confidence or address the root cause behind the significant value destruction and missteps that this board has overseen. That was former Disney CFO is up for its board by J. Clara Chan from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 15, 2023. All right, we're going to get into some articles from several editions of the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times. And uh, this first one is from the section for Thursday, November 16, 2023, his swan song is anything but ordinary. Mohawk descendant Robbie Robertson felt added connection to his collaboration with Martin Scorsese on Killers of the Flower Moon by Tim Grieving. Robbie Robertson made his masterpiece, then left this world. The singer-songwriter-composer spent the better part of a year writing and recording a score for Martin Scorsese's epic Killers of the Flower Moon always suffering from the effects of cancer. He finished the job and was able to enjoy a private album release party, but he died shortly after in August at age 80. I was actually supposed to interview him that week. My article became a tribute. What turned out to be Robertson's swan song was one of the most impressive scores of the year and the best film score of his career. It was also fit a fitting bookend to The Last Waltz, the 1976 concert documentary about the band, his band, that introduced him to Scorsese. About 10 years ago, Robbie reminded me that the last waltz project, as we conceive, it was absolute madness, Scorsese says by email. Scorsese says by email. No one has ever attempted such a thing. And that really united us. Our friendship began in a deep shared commitment to our chosen art forms, music and cinema, and to walking through the fire as Robbie used to put it, and coming out on the other side with something we could be proud of. Robertson became one of Scorsese's key collaborators, musically supervising and contributing original songs or instruments on multiple pictures through the, through the years. He scarred the Irishman for Scorsese in 2019, but Flower Moon was an even more personal and perfect assignment for Robertson. He was a descendant of Mohawks, and this was a story of the Osage and their victimization in Oklahoma a hundred years ago. It was what made it especially important for him, especially meaningful, says Scorsese. I'm so happy we got to do it together. Still, Robertson didn't want anything stereotypical on the score. He didn't want to do the obvious kind of thing. 
the kind of Hollywood approach to Native American music, said Mark Graham, the orchestrator who helped Robertson achieve the score. He was very cautious about that. And when you see the movie open, you don't really know what the story is at that point. The audience doesn't, and, and to hit it with a kind of dirty rock guitar, that's a bold move. Robertson could read or write music, and he was not a traditional film composer. He was initially reluctant to be set up with Graham, a veteran music man who works with such renowned composers as John Williams and Alexander Desplat, but the two men soon found a groove. Starting in July 2021, Robertson would send Graham iPhone videos of him strumming or singing ideas. Some were conceived for specific scenes, others were just moods he wanted to create for his conversations with Scorsese. Everything from dirty rock to blues to a Salvation Army-style brass band. Robbie had this idea about an ensemble that we haven't heard for a for that we haven't heard for a film, says Graham, who remembers Robertson being particularly obsessed with the manzarin, a jangling zither-like instrument he discovered on an old blues record, as well as some unusual guitar bows. We have this weird guitar ensemble, says Graham, with lots of different guitars and mandolins, mandocellos, a zither, some keyboards, all old-fashioned stuff, bass, some percussion, a couple of cellos, and a harmonica. This unorthodox band assembled at Robertson's longtime studio home in the village in West L.A. Robertson was tough on his musicians, reacting very strongly if he didn't like a take. The worst thing he could say was, it was really ordinary, said Graham. You couldn't really define what ordinary was. You would fuss with stuff and arrive at something that he felt was good. Robertson recorded hours of music in this band-like way, adding native flutes and shakers and all, si all kinds of other earthy elements, and sent it to Scorsese and editor Thelma Schoenmacher, who would cut it in as they pleased. Much of it didn't end up in the picture. Some of it was used over and over, but Scorsese mixed it loud and the music became a dominant character, a ghost, a heart, and a time machine, all in one. The two opening sequences of a black-and-white newsreel providing backstory about the oil boom that made the Osage rich and Leonardo DiCaprio's introduction to the town of Fairfax struck with a confident, bluesy gait that establishes a feeling of upbeat pride that will soon be appended. For a scene where Ernest Caprio drops off Molly Lily Gladstone in his cab, I told him I wanted something dangerous and fleshy, Scorsese says. It gave me a real gut bucket blues theme that not only worked for the scene, but drove the momentum of the picture. I asked for a theme that matched the scale of the landscape, the mystery. He gave me that and more. As the Osage death started piling up, there's a sickening arrhythmic heartbeat idea that insistently thumps under the reign of terror with agitated harmonica solos. The film runs a staggering 3.5 hours. And with a picture that big in scope, with that many characters and locations and relationships and betrayals, Scorsese says, the music helps to keep everything unified and moving forward. In order for that to work, it really needs to become a key aesthetic element. And for that, you need an artist as great as Robbie was. Scorsese adds, we just knew each other. We trusted each other. We respected each other. We loved each other. That was His Swan Song is Anything But Ordinary by Tim Greeting from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 16, 2023.
All right, this next one is from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023, when good and evil are clearly in focus. All the light we cannot see, director Sean Levy, filming a story using displaced Ukrainians as French refugees, faces a bitter irony as war rages nearby, by Hugh Hart. Amid the bombed-out streets of a picturesque French village, blind teenager Marie Leray, her kindly papa, an agoraphobic resistance fighter, a young German soldier, and one sadistic Nazi cross paths in the sprawling World War II saga, All the Light We Cannot See. Anthony Doerr's best-selling novel, thickly plotted with time jumps, philosophical mute mustings, supernatural diamonds, and secret radio transmissions, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015. Four years later, director-producer Sean Levy, Night at the Museum, Stranger Things, and his 21 Laps Entertainment Company acquired the rights and enlisted Peaky Blinders creator Steve Knight to adapt the book as a limited series for Netflix. Released earlier this month, the four-episode All the Light We Cannot See struck a chord with audiences, opening at number one in the streamer's global top ten list of most-watched shows. The cast includes Mark Ruffalo, Hugh Laurie, and Lewis Hoffman, but it's the show's previous unsung stars who make the most striking impressions. Speaking from London, Knight, now writing for the next Star Wars movie, and Levy, in town to direct Deadpool 3, explain how they put how they pulled breakthrough performances from a blind Fulbright scholar, a little girl from Wales, and German actor renowned in Europe for his avant-garde Hamlet. Question. Aria Mia Loberti, who is blind, portrays the show's hero, Marie Laurie, with bravado to spare. And yet she never acted before, all the light we cannot see. How did you find her? Sean Levy. We put out an open casting call on the internet where anyone could, could send in an audition. And one of them was Aria, a PhD candidate in forensics. She had no idea what she was doing as an actor, yet fear, fierceness of her intellect made me confident that I could teach her how to act through the camera. I didn't count on the extent to which she would teach me about her experience as a person who was blind. Question. So you learned a few things as well? Levy, I learned how Aria mapped space. She uses her feet to feel the edge of a rug, an uneven floorboard, brick that's laid slightly askew. Aria's so smart. If she walks a space once between her tactical experience and the way sound bounces off of objects, she maps that instantly to memory. Question. What about close-ups? Levy, I gave Maria a note once on how active her brow was being in a take, and she said, Sean, I've never seen my face, so you need to be my mirror. You need to tell me every detail of what you want my face to be doing because I'm not con conscious of it the way a sighted person would be. That's a profound difference in process. I'm a dozen movies into my career, and this was not like any shoot I've ever done. It was life-changing. Question. Stephen, did you envision Marie being played by a blind person when you wrote the script? Stephen Knight. That decision was made collectively early on. I'd written the first couple of episodes when we cast Aria, and her auditions I saw there was no attempt to elicit pity or sympathy or even empathy. Seeing that strength on the screen helped me write stuff where it's not a blind person being blind. Marie's just a person doing what she does in this terrible situation where everyone's life is in jeopardy. Question. 
Arya holds her own opposite the very experienced Mark Ruffalo, who plays her dad, Daniel, and Hugh Laurie in the role of her great-uncle, Etienne. How did you get these styles to mesh? Levy. Hugh plans what he's going to do and delivers every take. Mark needs more exploration and doesn't want rigorous planning. I think one reason Arya got so good so fast is that she borrowed pages from both their playbooks. Question. Neil Sutton from Wales, also blind, portrays young Marie in the 1934 flashback sequences. With her bob haircut, little outfits, and sparkling expression, she's kind of adorable. Levy. Unbearably cute. Nell's actually the first person we cast be before Arya, before Mark and Hugh Laurie. When we zoomed, I was smitten by her effervescence and knew, boy oh boy, her inherent lovable quality would bring us out of the gate in episode one with strength. Question. Marie's nemesis, Nazi officer von Rumpel, couldn't be more ruthless. Stephen, what did you have in mind when you wrote that French cafe scene where von Rumpel slurps oysters while tormenting the poor waiter? Night. It's World War II. There is no gray area. There is good and bad, and people like Von Rumpel are bad. I wrote scenes to make that point as clearly and literally as possible. Levy. Credit to Steve for writing that season, scene, and also to Lars Edinger, who plays Von Rumpel. I don't know if we would have found him if my friend Adam Driver hadn't tipped us off. Question. What? Levi. I called Adam to see if he'd want to play another villain after years of Kylo Ren. He said, no, but I'm working with this German actor on this new Noah Baumbach movie, White Noise, and you got to check him out because I can't stop watching this guy. So I reached out to Lars, and literally within four lines of the oyster scene, we knew he's our guy. Such menace. But later he finds new ones in this villain character that surprises us. Question. You saw most of the show in Hungary when Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Levy. Yeah, and we ended up having Ukrainian refugees playing French refugees in the Invasion of Paris sequence. The echoes of history weren't just subliminal, they were literally in front of me in the form of several hundred extras who, like their characters, were fleeing an invading neighbor from the east. Question. That must have given you pause? Levy. Levy. It's all, it, it's all given me pause. We were what weirdly topical when we shot this show, and yet again, in releasing it, we're hauntingly timely with yet another war raging. We've tried to get Tony Dorr's beautiful novel about empathy and connection and show the need to be spirited in your protection of humanity in the midst of inhumanity. And that's when good and evil are clearly in focus by Hugh Hart. From the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. All right, from the same envelope section... Tuesday, November 28, 2023. Banality finds a horrific partner. The zone of interest required distinct audioscapes, those of ordinary home life and a Holocaust death camp background by Robert Abel. When British sound designer Johnny Byrne first started working with countryman Jonathan Glazer on the director's Under the Skin, also Byrne's first film job after years in music videos and creating the signature burbling Skype ringtone, he sensed a kindred spirit about the immersive molecular level at which sound can operate. For so many directors, sound is a supporting role to create the suspicion of, suspension of disbelief, Burns said recently via Zoom from his home base in Brighton. But Jonathan understands sound is 50% of the experience and has 
and it has enormous power to turn the emotion or narrative. That ethos became years of work on the zone of interest, Glazer's chilling depiction of the everyday world of an ambitious Auschwitz commandant and his upper-middle-class family living right outside the death camp's perimeter in a well-manicured suburban serenity at willful odds with the horror yards away. As in the horror anyone would hear if they chose to hear it, artillery, marching, the omnipresent industrial rumble of a genocidal apparatus. Rudolf Haas and his wife Hedwig, however, can laugh in their bedroom about taking a European vacation and not react to gunshots or screams in the distance. John realized you can never put an image in your head that was as powerful as the one you could make on your own, says Byrne, whose research document of sight and error specific sounds ran to 600 pages. So you sit there with our collective knowledge of what happened, and every single sound, no matter how loud it is, is extremely violent. The sound works as constant reinforcement of the whole premise of the film. When the film premiered to raves at Cannes, what Byrne achieved was so admired that he won the festival's prestigious Technical Artistry Award. On Zone, for which Byrne had his largest ever sound budget, the two distinct audioscapes were required, a banal foreground and the grim background. On the house and garden set in Poland, 20 hidden directional microphones captured the real sounds of the actors simultaneously performing in long takes across many rooms and spaces. Nazis in the Big Brother house was Glazer's quip for his deliberately emotionless multi-camera aesthetic. Footsteps, talking, teacups rattling, children playing, nature outside. That was the first process, to edit that together and make sure there was continuity, says Byrne. That paradoxically very pleasant audio mix of a household, the odd chirping bird, nothing awful, notes Byrne, would then be augmented over many more months with the hellish reality nearby. He points to a scene where Hedwig and her visiting mother take a stroll through the beautifully landscaped grounds that aboot one of the camp's walls. John would say, let's hear 20 prisoners being marched by a guard who was shouting, and I would go to my database of thousands, and in Poland, we had a Foley team who grouped together 50 people. We had wooden clogs, bare feet, walking on gravel, walking on grass, that's one layer. Then came the guards yelling, recordings that Byrne monitored for overacting. Anything that was hammy would stick out like a sore thumb. A day spent capturing guns from the period was another opportunity for historical accuracy. The weaponry they had at Auschwitz was not the stuff on the front line. It was from the First World War, so we had the correct arsenal of sound for that. Byrne's commitment to sound as its own omnipresent narrative led to another addition based on his research. In order to protect the guards' sanity, they would start a motorbike or two and rev that up to drown out the screams of the murder, he said. Hence the reason for that sound. All in all, just the garden scene alone ultimately used over 500 different incidences in, in of sound. It was the kind of work impossible but uh, impossible not to get depressed about. Burns adds, Jonathan and I had dark moments, not feeling good about a scene really working. Byrne also operated in tandem with composer Mika Levy, whose music can feel like soundscapes too. One of the revelations the filmmakers had was that a score over scenes didn't play well. Then Mika had an idea that it could work as an overture 
and it's extraordinary. Burns says of Vevey's opening groan of a composition heard before we see anything. The other thing it does is say, use your ears, and that's very powerful. There was Banality Finds a Horrific Partner by Robert Abel from the per, uh, envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. And we go to this one from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for November 30, 2023. They wanted a boring monster. To play a Nazi in the zone of interest, Christian Frieda taps into the everyday but tries not to connect with the audience by Tim Grierson. When Christian Frieda was preparing to play Rudolf Haas, the real-life Nazi commandant at Auschwitz, who's the alarmingly opaque protagonist of the zone of interest, he discovered an audio recording of Haas from the Nuremberg trials. It was really interesting to hear his voice because it's not the voice of a commandant in his prime, the soft-spoken 44-year-old says over Zoom from New York. It's more a voice of a prisoner. He described in a very precise way what he did. It was chilling. I never heard an apology to the victims or that he realized his crime. He said, it was my job and I want to be the best at my job. Huss would eventually express remorse before being executed in 1947 at age 45. But Frieda wasn't concerned about portraying the actual Huss. This was an interpretation with a lot of freedom in it, he notes. And that audio enabled them to get a bead on how to portray an unremarkable mon monster. Like the hypnotically minimalist drama that contains Frito's restrained performance, the Haas we meet is immaculately presented, his hair never must, his manner often serene. An efficient cog in a terrifying machine, the character alongside his wife Sandra Huller and their blandly spirited young children resides in his own personal slice of heaven, the concentration camp just beyond his spacious home's manicured garden and picture-perfect shrubs, the killings out of sight and mostly certainly out of mind. Growing up in East Germany, Friedel didn't know the name Rudolf Haas. When I was 10, the wall fell, he says, creating a really, really good history teacher for opening his eyes by showing his class Schindler's List. This was the first time I realized the dimension of this immense crime, says Friedel. I started thinking about the past. Grappling with Germany's history would become a theme in Friedel's work. His first film was Michael Haneke's Palme de or winner, the White Ribbon, in which he's a teacher in a village in the 1910s where the children are concocting malicious schemes, an upsetting prelude to the rise of Nazism. He could be a kid in the White Ribbon, Frieda surmises of Haas. Frieda later starred in Downfall, director Oliver Hirschbegel's 2015 drama 13 Minutes, the true story of George Elser, who failed in his attempt to assassinate Hitler. But what made the zone of interest writer-director Jonathan Glazer, who adapted Martin Amis's novel, think Frieda would be right for Haas? There was a very famous interview from an American journalist with Rudolf Haas, and he described him as an ordinary school teacher, Friedel says, adding with a laugh, Jonathan saw the white ribbon and I played a school teacher. Getting more serious, he offers, I think it was searching for maybe a soft person, Jonathan said. You're full of warmth. You're a sympathetic person really kind. Not that Frida, who exudes a shy sweetness, was meant to utilize those attributes in the zone of interest. Working inside a set equipped with multiple cameras, Big Brother in the Nazi house became the cast and crew's shorthand for the technique. He and his co-stars are essentially being surveilled by the audience, 
their characters' actions reduced to the most basic domestic activities, their personalities neutered. One of the film's most fascinatingly unsettling consequences couldn't be more commonplace. It's just Haas walking around the house turning off lights before bedtime. The lens's dispassionate stare transforms Haas into a non-specific father, husband, and Nazi commandant. We are faintly aware of the camp, but those atrocities are intentionally absent. As a result, the humdrum every day is infused with invisible menace. Haneke said to me, to portray normality on screen, it's the most difficult challenge for an actor, recalls Friedel, who drew on the lessons from the white ribbon for the zone of interest. That was the challenge. We see Haas and sometimes there is a question mark. He and Hewler have the unenviable task of depicting people that they didn't want viewers to connect with while behaving in recognizable ways as a married couple. To be honest, Sandra and I hate these characters from the bottom of our heart. But it was important that the audience can believe that we what we are doing, or that they believe the reality, their ordinary life. The trick for Friedel was to resist his instincts and, as he describes it, not be afraid to be boring. Sometimes, actors think, I don't want to be boring. I want to be exciting and emotional, and I want to show my talent. But here, it was not important. Still, it was jarring for him to watch the finished film and notice what parts had been cut. I miss some important scenes from me as an actor, Friedel admits, referring to moments when Haas is more emotionally expressive. But I really think it's great that Glazer decides not to use those scenes in the movie. My ambition to show the world that I could be a great actor or a very fascinating personality is not, is not necessary for this project. Consequently, it's easy to miss how sinuous the performance is, the tension of Haas's placid surface set against the unseen horrors just over the backyard wall. Often Friedel is in the background, his back turned to the camera, as Glazer strenuously keeps him at arm's length, arm's length, eschewing any possibility of relating to the Commandant. But repeat viewings of the Zone of Interest, which was awarded the Grand Prix at Cannes, reveal the precision Friedel brings to the role of a prideful cipher defined by his social standing. Haas is good at his job, and nothing more. Friedel finds that interviews have helped ex exorcise Haas out of the system, which he's grateful for but he's not interested in explaining the character. I'm always thinking, how was it possible to live with this crime, with this guilt, and then to believe our home is a paradise? I cannot understand it. He couldn't have imagined tackling such a part when he was a boy first falling in love with film. Those fond memories have stayed with him. I had a weekly routine, he tells me. Every Sunday there was a 9 a.m. screening in a cinema next to my neighborhood, and after, we had ice cream. Glowing reviews have praised the zone of interest for its haunting depiction of the banality of evil, which is accurate but risks simplifying the stunning film to critic-speak clichés that could be applied to so many lesser Holocaust dramas. Frida believes it's crucial to be precise about what the movie's true intentions are. We want to define these persons not as evil, he says. They do evil things and the decisions they made were evil, but they were not born evil. There is a darkness in all of us, and we have to be aware of that. To illustrate his point, Friedel tells a story that acknowledges how compl complacency can poison anyone, including himself. Early on, he would ponder his character's moral ugliness. I cannot understand how it is possible to ignore the smell, to ignore the sounds that are going on 
to ignore your work killing millions of people. He says of Huss living happily with his family near the camp, but we, when we shot in Auschwitz, we were there, we were for three months very close to the actual camp, very close to the original house. And there was a time I realized, oh, I forgot where I am. I was shocked how easy it is to forget. And this is, for me, the most important thing in this movie. It's so easy to ignore what's around us. We are masters of self-deception. That was They Wanted a Boring Monster by Tim Grierson from the Envelopes section of the Los Angeles Times for November 30, 2023. Let's conclude with an ad from the Bechayad Together section from the Jewish National Fund USA. Commemorate your loved one, honor and memorialize. Complimentary annual yard set reminders, online memorial wall plaques, Yiskor and holiday reminders and candles. NJMW.org National Jewish Memorial Wall. NJMW.org slash NJNF dash memorials. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.